I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to our new and returning listeners. At Ake Women, our endeavor is to bring in narratives of women from the diaspora in the hope that their struggles and successes help others on their journey. Today, we're thrilled to be interviewing a lady who actually makes a living from telling stories. London-based Seema Anand is a holistic life coach, guide, healer, YouTuber, Instagrammer, a hoarder of books, and above all, a practitioner of narrative storytelling. Seema is also a partner at Tharoor Associates, where people go to learn about dealing with unconscious biases. Born in New Delhi, Seema got married and moved to England when she was just 23. After giving birth to her third child, she returned to school to study further. Seema has been researching Hindu mythology and erotica since 1986. She lectures on the Mahabharata, the Ramayana, Tantra, the Mahavidyas, the Kama Sutra, and the Bhagavad Gita. These are unusual topics, and it takes guts for anyone, leave alone a South Asian, to hold forth on subjects like seduction and Hindu love manuals. Considering her TED talk on the topic got over 8 million views, let's listen as Seema discusses the art of seduction and other intriguing gems. Hi, Seema. Hiya. It's good to be with you, Monica. Thank you for having me here. As someone whose work also involves researching and writing on Hindu mythology, I feel I've found a fellow seeker. The videos I've seen reveal that you have an impeccable sartorial style and I can see that and I lust after many of your saris. But what I really want to know is the story behind your white bindi. I'd love to be able to say that this white bindi has one of those amazing little stories. You know, the secret of my power lies over here. But actually, it's really, really straightforward. I found that being slightly darker skinned, the white bindi really pops. I have to say, putting it on made me feel really powerful. So maybe there is a secret power to it. But I just think it's beautiful. I think that nobody wears white bindis and I love them. It makes a statement. Let's circle back to growing up in New Delhi. How was it in those days? What are your views on Delhi today? So I have to say, I like Delhi of the past because things that are happening in Delhi now are not particularly nice. Delhi has taken on a fairly aggressive identity. It's not as pleasant to be over there. Um, I'm a boarding school product. My parents have always been there. I went to live in Delhi after I finished school because I went to university in Delhi. And it was a it was a fun place to be. You know, girls' boarding schools in India are very strict, so you were never allowed to go out and so on. So Delhi my, was my first taste of real freedom, and I was in love with the city for a very long time. That means your parents gave you that freedom. I was very fortunate. I come from a really unusual background when it comes to um, Indian families. I've come from several generations of 
educated working women. So my great-grandmother was a working woman. And uh, she was actually, she was highly educated. She was an inspector of schools during the British Raj. And she was also a social activist. And she actually died leading a protest against domestic violence. She had four daughters. So my grandmother was one of four girls. And they were all educated to be professionals. So two of the sisters were principals of colleges. And two of them went into uh, medicine. My grandmother was a psychiatrist and her younger sister was a gynecologist and her younger sister was my role model growing up. And then we come to my mother, who was also a working woman. Women in our family were always expected to have an identity. They were expected to be independent. They were expected to work. And there wasn't this thing about you're a woman and therefore you can't. And if you think about it, my mother actually was divorced when she was pregnant with me because her husband raised a hand on her and my grandparents were like, this is unacceptable, you're coming right back home. And so I've never actually met my biological father. I have had two wonderful stepfathers who brought me up. So I literally, I was fortunate enough to come from a family which believed that women have identities and they have the right to be who they are. That in itself is an incredible story. I read somewhere about your father being assassinated. Uh, so was that the defining moment? That's my first stepfather, Monica. Um, I was 19. He was actually, uh, he was the ambassador to India. So he wasn't Indian, he was the ambassador to India. And it was a political assassination. It was a terrible time. This happened in 1982. So my mother's youngest brother, who I'm very close to, had just been in a terrible accident where he had been run over by a truck. And he was in hospital with unbelievable injuries. And suddenly in the middle of all that, one morning we wake up. This was summer holidays from university. I just finished my second year at university. I was interning at one of the airlines. My mother dropped me there. She went on to work. We got a call saying he's been killed. We never saw him again because uh, he was taken away for his autopsy, his postmortem, and because he was an international person, you know, he, he was a foreign national in India. We, his body was taken away and I didn't get to say goodbye. So that was a defining moment because I think it's one of those times when you, you could literally just fall apart. Um, my mother was very strong. I have to give her credit for being incredible. But it, just to make things worse, so my uncle, her younger brother is in hospital. My dad's just been killed. Um, and I call him my dad because my mother met him when I was one year old. And so he really brought me up. We have the CIA camped in our house because every international intelligence agency had arrived in India. It was a political assassination. We had the police camped out because we were put under house arrest because they didn't know whether we would be the next targets or what was going to happen. Just getting through that time was, I, I cannot even tell you how awful it was. And it was at this point that somebody said to me, you know, the only way to deal with life is to believe that your life is made up of little tiny, tiny stories, because that way you can change one little ending at a time. I have to say that I've never forgotten that lesson. I think stories are the most powerful tool of influence in the universe. And anybody who doesn't live by their stories doesn't really know what they're doing. That is so profound. Is that person still in your life? That was a friend of mine, and she's still a very dear friend. 
My dad was really keen on my education. I was studying literature at university and I'd come home with all these books and he had no idea what E.M. Foster was saying about a particular sentence construction or whatever, but he still love it. So when the other people from the embassy would come over, he'd be like, oh yeah, I'm reading this book. He'd pretend he was actually reading it. It's quite funny. I did really well in my second year. And I remember crying to this other friend and saying, oh my God, I wish he was here to see it. He would have been so proud of me. Somebody said to me, you have to believe that they're there and that they're every single time you talk to them, they are listening because that's the only way to get past it. I've taken that on board completely. So the other person I was very close to was my nanny, my grandmother. And in her later years, my grandmother had become quite hard of hearing and she'd wear a hearing aid. And every time she thought I was bugging her or was getting too loud, she'd just turn it off. And she'd be like, no, now I don't have to listen to you. And I'd said to her that after you're gone, I'm going to hold on to your hearing aid, which I have done. And every time I want to talk to her, I just turn on the hearing aid and I'm like, now I get to press the button. You don't get to tell me when I turn it off. How special is that? It's like Nani is there with you forever. All I have to do is change a battery. <laughs> Absolutely. I was going to ask you how your mom leaving the marriage impacted you. Yeah, funnily enough, I don't think that it impacted me at all. One is, like I said, it was before I was born. Never met him. Had a great deal of love from my grandparents and my mother's siblings and then wonderful stepfathers. Didn't really feel that there was somebody missing. Have had a very, very exciting life. I've done almost everything, almost everything that I wanted to do. The only thing I didn't get to do, I wanted to become a fighter pilot. But yeah, uh, I didn't get to do that. But you know, I pretty much did everything else I wanted to. My daughter, who's now 23, said to me the other day, do you not ever get curious about your father? I've never seen him. I've never met him. I'm not particularly interested. I know that he got married again because he was having an affair already with somebody when he was married to mommy. I know that he had children. Somebody mentioned it. I don't know where any of them are. And it doesn't kind of enter my um, mind. So I've never thought about it. My daughter can't understand how I could be so insouciant about it. It's as though he doesn't exist. And that's not saying it from a broken point of view. I mean, it's literally just he doesn't exist because there have been other amazing people. At Ake Women, we talk about the importance of having mentors in your life. And just in this brief conversation we are having, I've heard about Mama, I've heard about a mother's younger sister, and I've heard about Nani. Have you had any others mentoring you and shaping the person that you've become? There's always somebody that shapes you. So whether it's good influence or a bad influence, it always shapes you. When I was at university, my Nani's younger sister, he was my role model. I am going to be 60. So if I say that 60 years ago, my mother in Delhi gets divorced, she meets my first stepfather, they don't get married, they live together 58 years ago in India. That's a big deal. So my nanny's sister, even before I was born, she got divorced because she was being ill-treated by her husband, who was a very powerful, very rich man. She met the person she wanted to marry. They didn't get married for years. They lived together as well. They made their life. And my nanny's younger sister, Padmamasi, was one of those amazing women who, right, literally to the end of her life, drove around in an open Jeep, was totally independent, was not a very well person. She had lots of problems with her heart and her kidneys. 
entirely independent and just so feisty. She believed in doing whatever she wanted to do. I think I've been fortunate to have a lot of love and a lot of encouragement. There have been lots between my great-grandmother, my grandmother, her sister, my mother, her sister. Of course, lots of amazing and wonderful friends. When I first arrived in the UK, I made friends with a bunch of people who were not at all like me. That's the point that I really discovered what it felt like to be bullied or not accepted because I was just so different. You kind of turn up in a group of people who think differently. And because you stand out and you're independent, you've got to be put down because that makes them feel better about themselves. So they gossiped and they put you down and they criticized everything that you did and so on. So I put up with that for a few years as well. Went through a really bad state of depression because you just think, oh my God, what's happened to my life? And then at some stage, something happens. In my case, it was my third pregnancy. Something flipped. And that's when I realized that actually there was a hell of a lot more to life than sitting over here and moping. I was going to get up and do stuff. And I guess I've never looked back since. So I always say my third child was a girl, my Shakti. It rose up and took over. She's the 23-year-old. The older two are boys. And I'd always had this thing about, okay, my mother had always been a working person. And so I wanted to be a stay-at-home mummy for the, for the boys because I thought maybe that was the way that I could make them more secure. I discovered it wasn't very good for me, for my mind. It didn't help me. Whereas as a working person, as a studying person, I'm, I'm more productive. I'm better. I'm better as a mother. What year did you get married? 1985, December. And you started working on the Kama Sutra and Erotica in 1986? No, I didn't start it in 86. My daughter was born in 98. So it was literally just as soon as she was born, so 99. Did you have an arranged marriage? I did. And that too, because I was rebelling. How do you rebel against a mother who is that cool? This, this party mother who is now with her new wonderful partner. He was a diplomat in India, so there wasn't any monetary issues. They were the party goers. They would be at clubs like four times in the week. They all drank, smoked a lot. You know, it was a very cool gang to be around. How do you rebel against that? I rebelled by being a teetotaler. I don't drink. I refuse to smoke. My mother used to always suggest that I should join films because she said, you know what, you're so good on stage. And I was like, I will not join films. I will be an academic. So I decided to go into academia. Literally everything that she said, I had to kind of go against it. Um, and I wish now that I joined the films because I think it would have been so cool. We won't tell her that because it'll be like, I told you so. Every little thing in life was about what she said you shouldn't do. I felt I had to do. And one of the things that she said was that I don't believe in arranged marriages because nobody in our family, not my grandmother, nobody's ever had an arranged marriage. She said, I don't believe in arranged marriages and I will not have that happen to you. And I was like, in that case, I won't get married. I will only get married if I have an arranged marriage. Talk about axing your own foot. For a South Asian to say that arranged marriage is a rebellion is just, you know, ironic. <laughs> and you know what, Monica, we fought about it for about three years. She was like, no. And I was like, well, in that case, I'm not getting married. Considering the family background that you've given me, 
How did your husband say yes? Did you even talk about it before you got married, considering it was an arranged marriage? So I don't think that Rahul ever thought that I wouldn't have a career. I think that that was okay for him. I just think that he expected me to be a lot more traditional. I think he's like any other Asian man. He would have loved it if I was this good little wifey who would make a nice meal for him every day would sit and listen to his opinions rather than having my own. I think he would have been so happy. Unfortunately, he ended up with me that there wasn't enough time to work out what was not right about this particular coupling. When I started my work on the Kama Sutra, he wasn't particularly thrilled about it. He felt embarrassed. He thought that I was doing the wrong thing. But there comes a point when something comes from within you so I was going to do it anyway, whether with or without the support. Now, give him credit where it's due. He may not have wanted me to do it, but he has been hugely supportive in some ways. For instance, now I travel a lot with my work and I never have to think about who do I leave the house with, who's going to manage the kids, what's going to happen. He's there to look after things. So and give the devil his due. He, he does um, do all of that. Yeah, it, it isn't his first choice. I think he wanted me to join a travel agency. If not, a tra- he wanted me to go into a fashion line. I am not into fashion. A marriage is not between just two individuals among South Asians. It's a family to a family. What they are accepting, plus the background where Nani's sister was living with her man, mother was living with somebody, and then this girl is coming into our lives. What's going to happen to our poor son? By the time I married my husband, my mother uh, had married her second husband, uh, sorry, her third husband. So I, I had my second stepfather. He was somebody who was looked up to very highly in societies. So that made us all very acceptable. But giving credit where it's due, my in laws were amazing people. My mother in law is now. 93 years old. She's the only person out of my in-laws who's actually read my book. And she's read it several times. She's on the verge of dementia. So she reads it and then she forgets she's read it. So she reads it again, which is really sweet. And then she tells me, Beta, I read your book and it was amazing. The rest of the family, they were not quite as open-minded, but they have had to get used to it. And uh, fortunately, I guess, Monica, living away from India, because most of them are in India, has also helped. How about your kids? Have they read your book? Yes, I have two boys and the elder one is married. So now I have two girls in the family as well. The girls are really, really supportive. They go with me to every lecture I do, every talk I do. The boys are dragged along. I think they're secretly proud of me, but they're actually really embarrassed of their mother who talks about the Kama Sutra. The children are very much a part of it. The book is actually dedicated to my children because I would really like to see the world changing for the next generation. We all should have the right to tell our story and we should have the right to pleasure and we should have the right to choose. Is the next generation ready? I have two boys and if I even mention the word sex or the O word, then they're like, mother, TMI. How do you see the future of the Kama Sutra with the coming generations, which is not titillating? I think the boys are getting more used to it, but it's still a bit of going to do. The girls are very on board, very supportive, very behind me all the way. My work is about fighting for the women's narrative. I think that it is women who will bring about the change. Initially, it is going to be a problem and there will be a lot more conflict. 
if men want to be with these women, they are going to have to eventually accept the change. How do I see it happening? I really believe, Monica, that the only way to bring about change is to change the stories that we tell. You can change as many laws as you want. Nothing makes a difference. Everything on the ground will remain the same. It's only when you start telling different stories, that's when real sustainable change takes place. So that's what I'm trying to do, just change the story. One of the ladies that we interviewed is a writer, Chitra Banerjee Divakaruni. She's written two amazing books, Palace of Illusions and Forest of Enchantments. Both of them are the Ramayana and Mahabharata from the point of view of Draupadi and Sita. Brilliant narratives, putting the woman in the forefront. Have you read them? I read the Palace of Illusions. I haven't read Forest of Enchantment. It's women like Chitra who are changing the narrative. One of the subjects that I studied a great deal was the Ramayana because I worked in Oxford with John Brockington and Mary Brockington, who are the world authorities on the global Ramayans. Yeah, they're absolutely incredible. There's nothing about the Ramayans that they don't know. Through them, I actually explored the female characters in the Ramayans. You know, a lot of the Indian authors, when they write from the woman's point of view, the story remains the same, but they tend to put in more of the thoughts that come from the woman. Thoughts, they'll express her ideas, they'll express her emotions, which otherwise get silenced, which is absolutely fantastic. The new thing that I discovered while working with Professor Brockington and Mary was it's not just about taking the same stories and talking about it from a different perspective. There are different stories that we tell. So, okay, let me explain to you what I mean. A lot of people have written the Ramayana from Sita's point of view. And mostly it is all about giving her the space to lament or grieve about what's happening. Now, in the original Ramayana story, or even actually in the way that it's always told, if you think about it, when Sita is captured by Ravan, when he takes her out of the hut with her and he takes her onto his flying chariot, and he flies up into the air and he meets with Jatayu, the eagle, and they start to have this fight. Imagine how Sita would have felt. She would have been petrified. She's out there. She's just been kidnapped by this person. She has no idea what's going to happen to her. She's wavering 30,000 feet in the air on this little flimsy flying chariot. There is a battle going on outside. She still, in spite of her fear, has the presence of mind to take off her jewelry and throw it down so that her husband can find it and look for her. When she is in captivity with Ravan, it's a whole year. She's all alone. She's surrounded by the enemy. Look at her presence of mind where she knows that she can't make them so angry that they'll come and kill her, but she can't be so conciliatory that they will take advantage of her. Just imagine the balance, the inner power that woman must have had. You know, we don't tell that story. When we tell stories of where she's kidnapped by Ravan and she's kept there for a year, we tell stories of how Ram gathers his army, of what happens on the journey to Lanka, what happens during the battle. When was the last time we talked about what are the strategies that Sita uses every single day? And I've discovered something else. This whole thing about she's rescued, she's brought back. 
We always see Agni Pariksha as a bad thing. I think you have to see it in perspective. First of all, it was the law of the day. It was ritual of the time. I don't know if you know this, but in Britain, that is still the law that the Princess of Wales, the queen-to-be, if she has an affair with anybody else, she's supposed to be executed for that, and so is her lover. Because in case there is a child from that, then the line of royalty changes. It's still in place. Nobody obviously thinks of that anymore. All this was brought up when Diana was having an affair. What I'm saying is in ancient times, it was part of the ruling. The Agni Pariksha was merely an acid test. It was not about walking through fire. It was supposed to be something really strong that you had to do to prove your innocence. And a lot of the people from royal families, both men and women, were taught how to take these Agni Parikshas because they knew that at some point they would have to do something like this. When we say that this was part of the ritual of the time, Suddenly, it doesn't feel so much about Sita being the one who was being victimized. Because we have to remember Sita was very strong. But the moment you say, oh, she had to go through the Agni Pariksha because her husband insisted, it wasn't that her husband insisted. It was the law of the land. I feel quite strongly about this, Monica, that her identity needs to be clarified as a strong woman, which is why I'm going into this story. The other thing that we're always told is that when she comes back, the dhobi says, if she lived with another man, how do we know that she's still pure, you know, in inverted commas? Once again, she's asked to leave. And because she's so pratirata, she's so good about listening to her husband, she's so obedient that she leaves. Actually, just before she leaves, we're told that there is a court case where all the citizens come together to discuss this particular issue. The final argument is that a woman who steps over social boundaries when she's been told not to, we don't know what else she's capable of. Normally, she's always told what to do. We see in the story, either her father or her husband or somebody. The only time she makes her own decision is when she steps over the Lakshman Rekha. She's been told not to do that, and she does it. Sita takes responsibility for her actions. And she says, yes, I did this. I will accept the consequences. And she leaves. If you tell the story like that, can you see how it just changes the connotation of her leaving? Absolutely. I know you haven't read Forest of Enchantment. Chitra calls it the Sitayan. And she talks about Sita's strength in that book. It's so fascinating to listen to you telling these stories. I can see how good you are at doing this. Is there any story that you feel validates the fact that you took this up as a profession? Oh, God, no. I think it's every single story that I come across. I went to university in India, did English literature only ever studied European literature because in post-colonial India, you were never taught any of the Indian authors. I didn't know of any of them. I come over here and then I am drawn towards Indian mythology and I get deeper and deeper into it. But the background to it has always been the same, that I work with women's narratives because the stories that we tell define our identity. And if you want to create change, you need to change the stories. Gradually, I start getting into the Indian stories. And I realize that we never, ever tell stories of a woman's right to her own body, a woman's right to her own sexuality. That's when I'd gone off to look for these stories, just to see what it is that we had silenced. We all know that we are the land of the Kama Sutra, but I didn't know very much about the Kama Sutra. I came across the erotic literatures 
Monica, I was blown away. It was like a treasure trove. It was like heaven opening up and giving me a glimpse of what lies beyond. They are that exquisitely beautiful. They're that important. They're that powerful. And it's these stories that they, they just blow me away. Every time I read one of them and I get to tell one of these stories, and I can tell you a couple of them if you like. I was going to ask, can you tell us? <laughs> can you- I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. (laughs) Okay, so being a storyteller, the thing is that I'm very happy telling stories. I hate the discipline of sitting down, putting pen to paper. It's painful. In ancient India, the erotica was written to create a very civilized society. They said that if you can get people to understand and accept pleasure as an art form, as something beautiful, as the path to heaven, you can create the most civilized society. If you can understand women are an equal, rightful recipient of pleasure and that a woman's pleasure is more important than that of a man you can be the most civilized society. This is why I like the Kama Sutra. You'd be amazed at the refinement, the elegance, just the beauty of the language. Everything is exquisite. What I discovered at one point was that the Kama Sutra inspired 2,000 years of our literature. So the Kama Sutra, which is written sometime 300-something, 80, till the end of the 1800s, a lot of the epic romances are all inspired by the metaphors of the Kama Sutra. They all talk about a lot of physical love, but they never ever talk about it in graphic terms. So you would never say she climbed up on top and then she did this. And each position was indicated through a piece of jewelry. Basically, you wore a piece of jewelry to understand how to perform that position according to the way the jewelry moved. You know, in the ancient world, women were not allowed to be on top because that was the position of power. But the Kama Sutra says that you can be on top, but to be on top, you basically only move your hips. You don't move the upper part of your body, otherwise you'll throw your back out. So you only move your hips for ultimate pleasure. What the women would do is they would wear a jingling girdle with lots and lots of bells on their upper waist and make sure that the bells didn't make a sound. So you put this on, I didn't think about anything else. You just thought, okay, how do I move without letting the bells move? You just move the lower part of your body. And so in our literature, you never said she climbed up on top and then she humped her way. You, you just said she put on her jingling girdle and you knew that she had taken her position on top or you knew what was going to happen. So poetic. Isn't it just?
which kind of epic romances are you talking about where they pick these different jewelries everything from kalidas to bhanudatta shakuntala kumar sambhavam meghdoot kadambari kumar sambhavam being my favorite so it is called either the prakrit literature or the classical sanskrit literature kumar sambhavam is the story of where parvati convinces shiva to come out of his um, meditation and they get married this is the one where kamdev is he's incinerated etc now in this particular story towards the end when parvati and lord shiva get married her maids dress her so they put on her saffron and her sandalwood and then they perfume her with all these oils and then they put the flower garlands on her and right at the end they paint the underneath of her feet red with alta that was part of the shringar and then they say now let's see how shiva takes these feet to his chandrama now we know that shiva wears a chandrama on his head i used to always wonder why is he going to put her feet on his head that too is a metaphor for making love the most popular position in ancient times was where the woman would be underneath with her ankles on the man's shoulders and when she did that the alta would rub off on his forehead and no matter how hard he rubbed he couldn't get the marks off so if you saw a man with a bit of alta over there you knew what he'd been doing so you only basically ever took a woman's feet to your head if you were lovers that's what it meant and it's only when you understand what these metaphors are that you understand the story so incredibly subtle i saw a movie rekha i think was in that movie maybe meera nair's kama sutra where she is actually teaching two young girls about what you need to do to entice a man that doesn't happen anymore that doesn't happen anymore there's nobody out there teaching you about the arts of pleasure it's supposed to be a bad thing you know something monica i think that the ancient erotic literatures of india were written by a woman because in this same story when kamdev is killed when the god of love and desire is killed off his wife rati is so distraught she wants to kill herself and the god say to her no you can't do that because you can't have a world without love and desire how will we survive so you need to continue his work and eventually we'll bring him back we're told that rati wrote several of the texts i really think that the erotic texts were written by the courtesans of the time because if you look at the ancient erotic texts from china from persia from japan they're really quite aggressive they're very male dominated they're very much about the act of sex they're very much about dominance not so the kama sutra the kama sutra doesn't talk about the act of sex at all it doesn't talk about thrusting it doesn't talk about sexual fluids it's all about the beauty of it you know it doesn't say yeah it's got to finish in sex it's all about this kind of love bite and this kind of jewelry and this kind of perfume and it's just beautiful i read in one of your interviews about kama sutra teaching you how to make a bed can you tell us about that yes the 64 skills of the kama sutra were supposed to make you a desirable lover which means that they were supposed to make you somebody that people wanted to be with a more diverse personality a more exciting person to be with the skills range across the board from singing and dancing and music to botany and gemology and um water sports and all sorts of things and one of them is called shayan rachanam which is the art of making the bed but it includes the the fact that you would make the bed 
to indicate how you were receiving your lover that day, whether you were receiving him with anger, with love, or with indifference. Because if you were to indicate that, they would have to approach you a certain way. It was supposed to be that special, that particular, that a woman's pleasure mattered so much and how a woman felt and thought mattered so much that a man had to be really careful to understand and judge it. And it was her responsibility to let him know. So she would make the bed accordingly. I think in Japan, the geishas had a way of tying their uh, kimonos in a particular way to indicate the same thing. And so this is done by the making of the bed. But I was interviewing somebody who keeps bees. And she said bees hum in different notes. So if they're happy, they will hum in a particular note. If they're angry, they're humming in a different note. You understand, you pick up the tone that they're humming in, and you will approach them accordingly. Why should it be any different for a woman? If she's happy, you can approach her a certain way. Or she's letting you know, just like the bees do with their humming. If she's angry, you approach her in a different way. You know, isn't that right? That's so fascinating. So, okay, the bed is a little crumpled. That means I'm indifferent. Been pulled <laughs> completely tight. You know, I'm ready and willing. Obviously, if this was written in ancient times and people were aware and practicing it, where did it all go downhill? When did things change and people stopped actually understanding the subtlety of what it's trying to teach you? Since when did the Kama Sutra just become a love Bible? This is a question I get asked every time I talk about the text. It's an evolutionary thing. Society moves on. Things change. The people who come into power become different. I think along with that, a lot of literature or a lot of practices, a lot of rituals get buried. You have to remember that from time immemorial, going back to the 8th century, we've been invaded ever since then. Everybody from the Portuguese to the Dutch to the Islamic nations to the British, they have brought their own ideals, their own ideas, their own thoughts, their own systems and philosophies. Somewhere along the way, it certainly got lost. The real reason that it gets lost is that the text still exists. But like every other treatise, it's written in metaphor. So like with the Arthashastra. People have spent a long time trying to understand what that particular metaphor means and translating the metaphor. With the Kama Sutra, they didn't bother to translate the metaphors. So a lot of it didn't make sense. The only thing that did make sense was the word positions. And so that's what they decided to go with. You also talk about Tantra. What is this difference between Tantra and the Kama Sutra? It's totally different philosophy. So the Tantras basically were dialogues which took place between Shiva and Parvati. He explains to her about every single thing in this universe. So it's a philosophy on everything in this universe. He explains how things should be handled, how things should be looked at, how things should be talked about, etc. The Tantras say that if the final aim is to achieve God, then everything is created by that same God, and hence everything must be understood. You cannot divide up and say this is pure and this is impure, this is good, this is bad, this is right, this is wrong. 
You have to understand everything in order to get past this veil of illusion to the ultimate truth beyond. A lot of people keep saying, what's the difference between regular meditation and tantric meditation? It's a very deep, complicated subject, but just in the simplest way. If you sit down to meditate, you say that you have to do away with the distractions so you can meditate. If you say that looking at something is going to distract me, you know, you shut your eyes, you make sure that you don't look at certain things because you deal with the distraction in a particular way. You say you detach it from the karmic cycle, you silence it. In Tantra, they say that anything that you silence will still have power over you. And just because your eyes are seeing something, you can't say that the rest of your body is not also being affected by what you are seeing. Because every part of your body takes that on. It's no point saying, I want to look at it with my eyes. With Tantra, you will go into it deeper and deeper till you focus on it, you concentrate, you absorb it into you so that you can then go beyond it. It's more difficult. It is more difficult. So with Tantra, it's just about subverting a lot of our thought processes. It's about saying these rituals are not important. Knowledge is important about understanding what is important. It's a very esoteric faith. In Tantra, unless you're actually an initiate and you have a guru, you're not supposed to know a lot of things. You're not supposed to be told many things. A lot of the things that sound really weird, you never get to really understand what it's about and believe in the misconceptions. I mean, I constantly say there's no such thing as tantric sex, but can I get anybody to believe it? No, you can't. Because when people hear the word yoni puja, they think that it's about worshipping the yoni, the vagina. And it's not just about the vagina. Actually, the yoni is supposed to be a triangle of shakti. We have 52 shaktis inside us. And at every point where those shaktis intersect, a triangle is created. And these are known as the yonis. We have 39 yonis. There's a lot of sexual practices in Tantra. They say that it's about raising that energy. Pleasure is an energy. It's a Shakti. And when you raise it, you harness it. It spreads through every part of your body. So you understand what is the importance of that. And there's certain terminology and certain metaphors that we use. So again, it's not about Tantric sex. It's about understanding that it's a Shakti that you're raising. In Tibetan Tantra, they actually say that you can use certain sexual positions to heal chronic illnesses. Because if pleasure is a Shakti, you raise it and then with your breathing, with your thrusting, with certain positions, you encourage that Shakti to flow through certain parts of your body. With your work in mythology, who do you feel is your favorite mythological female character and why? Sita is one of my favorites, even though she's been misinterpreted. But instead of a mythological character, I actually have a couple of goddesses who are my favorite. Can I tell you about them? Of course, of course. There's a group of goddesses called the Mahavidyas. Mm -hmm. And the Mahavidyas are only worshipped through tantric practices. They're a strange group of goddesses. There are 10, starting with Kali at the top, and the bottommost one is Lakshmi. They're all pretty ancient goddesses, but they come together as a group somewhere in about 1080. We don't really know how or why, but they take on a separate tantric identity. So Lakshmi, for instance, has her Hindu identity, plus 
She has a tantric identity as a Mahavidya. There's a distinct hierarchy to the tantric goddesses. One of them is called Baglamukhi, my favorite. She's known as the yellow goddess. She's the goddess of speech. They say that she can give you the power of such superior speech that with it, you can paralyze your enemy. She's the goddess of lawyers. When people look at the Baglamukhi mantras or they look at Baglamukhi worship, they only hear the word paralyze. And they think that you can do all this jadu tona or this magic and paralyze people. No, it's about paralyzing them with ultimate intelligence. She's Vaksadis. She's supposed to be the goddess where breath meets intelligence. Saraswati being the main godhead of that particular area. There are several pretty amazing goddesses. Most people don't even know about them. That's the sad thing. To come back to their mythological characters, I think Sita is definitely one of my favorites. When I was growing up, uh, Monica, I never liked Sita and I didn't want to be like Sita. Now, having understood her story, I think she's one of the most powerful women. We need to bring Sita back and Sita's story back. I love Shakuntala. Savitri is particularly feisty. I think she's fantastic. Give us your version of Savitri. She fell in love with somebody. She decided that she was going to marry him, even though she's being told this is not a good idea. That happens so often now that you say, well, no, I'm in love with him. Fighting Yum to me is all about fighting the obstacles. She obviously goes out of her way to make sure that he is healed. I have to tell you that I have a young friend. She comes from Gujarat, from a little village. She was educated in a Gujarati medium, Hindi medium school, like 20 years younger than me. Really pretty girl, very bright, totally energetic. Parents were not very wealthy. She's married off to this guy in this country whose parents didn't bother to tell anybody that he's on the autistic spectrum. Maybe they didn't know either. She has worked tirelessly. I mean, it's a painful marriage, but she says she can't get out of it. She doesn't have anywhere to go. Plus, she has a son. And now she feels a little bit responsible for this man who is really not very responsible for himself. She's been going to doctor after doctor. She's discovered that he has autism. She doesn't have the money to pay for the treatment that he needs, which is going to cost an arm and a leg and then some. She discovered a place where they would do it for free, but only if he meets certain criteria. So it would come under research and they would do it. And she said to me, she said, they sent me a form to fill out, which was 159 pages long. She said, I didn't understand most of the words. So she had her phone with her. She was Googling the meaning of the words before she could actually answer the questions. Did it got him accepted onto the program because she said, my doctor said, you'll have to wait two years. She said, for me, every day is two years with this man. I can't cope with this. To me, she is Savitri. Now, Savitri, we are told she does this because she loves Satyavan and that's what she would like to do. So she fights against all odds to make sure that he is cured. This young girl, for whatever reasons, is also doing the same thing. I see the parallels. Overcoming obstacles overcoming obstacles. It's amazing. Is the inability to have sex after getting older a myth or a reality? What's Kama Sutra's take on that? Kama Sutra says that the best sex or the best intimacy happens with somebody that you have been with for a very long time. Most people think that the chemistry has died and it's not great. 
it says that actually you shouldn't be swapping partners and changing partners. Because when you meet somebody new and it's all about the chemistry and you're like, I'm looking at you and I'm so turned on and you're done and dusted before you had a chance to enjoy any of that. When it takes longer to build up, it's much, much better. It also says that it should be something that you should have the ability to enjoy for the rest of your life, much like a good dessert. But in order to do that, you have to treat pleasure like an art form. You have to practice it. You have to build up on it. You have to understand it. Because the way that most of us know sex, most people, it is boring, mundane, and monotonous. And a woman's pleasure is never really thought about. So eventually, it becomes a chore rather than a pleasure. Most women say they will tolerate it because that has to be done. The Kam Sutra was written to teach men, but it wasn't written for women. Back in 300 and something AD, women were not taught how to read or write. It says very categorically that if you want your sex life to be good and you want it to last for the rest of your life, you have to make sure that the woman is fully pleasured because only then will it last forever and will it be good. That's where we've kind of lost out. It's definitely a myth that you can't have sex or you shouldn't or you don't when you get older. Unfortunately, it's a reality of our lives, but it's not a reality in life. Hopefully, this generation going forward will have their eyes opened and they will go back to what it used to be in ancient times. I see a lot of women, especially older women, saying, we're all religious people, so you stop sex after a certain age. Because it's sinful. Yeah, exactly. What in your mind is the biggest misconception about the Kama Sutra for Indians and in the West? Most people think it's a book about sex and that it's a dirty book and that it's uncontrolled, mad, aerobic, acrobatic sex. I think that's the biggest misconception. And that the moment you say the word, it has to be hushed up. Can you give us three easy-to-practice tips from the Kama Sutra to enhance a couple's lovemaking? Okay, so tip number one, which I think is the most important thing, is that over time, we've got so conditioned to the idea that women are not supposed to have pleasure, that it's not their right, that it's a sinful thing, and so on, that we've actually closed off those channels in our brains that deal with pleasure. I want people to understand that the first thing you need to do is open up those channels in your own head. Allow yourself to think about your own pleasure. Even if you don't want to talk to anybody about it, allow yourself to think about it. Most women will not even think about it. It's so taboo that it's been shut away. It's been buried six feet under and then it's been covered over with a sheet of lead. It's that buried. Allow yourself to think about it. The second thing is that pleasure is not just about sex. There are so many things that give you pleasure. Even if it means you're with somebody, holding hands, kissing, I don't know, trying love bites, trying many, many other things. Forget about actual sex. Forget about the penetration. Don't think of it as a race to the finish. Think of it as a train journey where you can get off at almost any station. It's not about sex, start to think about pleasure for pleasure's sake. The third thing is to say that 
your pleasure is your own responsibility. You could be with somebody and they could be the best lover in the world, but if your pleasure senses or your pleasure channels are closed up and you're not willing to accept it, you're not going to feel it. Your pleasure is your responsibility. The person with you is going to enhance it. But whether you feel it or not is going to be up to you. Beautiful tips. I love this. We are all going to have to start practicing this ourselves. Where do you see Seema Anand going in the future with this work that you're doing? Make a movie or do sex therapy? How do you want to use this awesome knowledge that you have? There's a couple of things that I'd like to do. One is, like I said, this change of narrative is really important. We were talking about pleasure a moment ago. You know, most people think of masturbation as a sinful thing, as a bad thing. Just trying to sort of break down a couple of misconceptions to say that in the Kama Sutra, at least, this idea of pleasuring somebody was a two-way street. You, you did it for your partner, not just for yourself. And so just breaking down these myths that either that it's a sinful thing or that certain things are just for the single person or pleasure is just for somebody who is in a relationship. I find that there are so many young women and men going forward with such bad dysfunctionality that it's affecting their mental health. I think that if mentally we're going to be a stronger generation to come, this is something that we need to deal with. It's a huge part of our lives. Believe it or not, I get told all the time, oh my God, that's all you can ever think about. Trust me, it's a very large part of our psyche. We need to sort that out. That's a really important thing for me. I already talk about intimacy and relational therapy, etc., with couples. Somebody's actually bought up the rights to the book and they want to make a film out of it at some point. So we'll see when that happens. So I've been asked to write a book which talks about the stories from the woman's point of view that actually give women the agency, stories that are not judgmental, that just purely about pleasure. Because I think once those stories start to come out, a lot of them are hidden. Only then can they be told. And only when you start telling them can they spread and take root and only when they take root can the change start to happen. Can you tell us the name of your book? Where is it available and what's it about? The book is called The Arts of Seduction, not to be confused with The Art of Seduction. It's actually a commentary on the Kama Sutra. So it actually deals with and demystifies and decodes the metaphors I was talking about. So that when you go out and read other literature, you know what those metaphors mean. So I was talking about the jewelry. This one talks about all the different pieces of jewelry and what they would amend, the different types of kisses, the different types of love bites, because a lot of times things are mentioned by name and you don't know what they're talking about. What does Seema Anand do to switch off from work life? Seema Anand watches old-time murder mysteries, things like the black and white Perry Masons and murder she wrote. <laughs> you know why? I call it hope porn. Because they are so unlikely. The justice in them is so wonderful. You know that in real life, it doesn't work. If you find one blonde stray hair, you're not going to be able to incriminate the guilty party and send them to jail. It's never going to happen. But in these stories, 
the bad guy is always caught, he's always sent to prison, and everybody is happy afterwards. When I switch off, it's all about letting somebody else fix the world for me because I spend so much of my time battling to see what needs to be fixed that I want somebody else to do that battle and fix it. I have a rapid fire round for you. Are you Uh ready? Fingers on the buzzer. (laughs) (laughs) Sari shopping or book shopping? Books, I think, much more. Favorite book? Currently, favorite book is a text called Nagar Sarvaswam, which is an 11th century commentary of the Kama Sutra, written by a Buddhist monk. Favorite Kama Sutra pose? (laughs) (laughs) It would have to depend on the favorite piece of jewelry. Favorite piece of jewelry? Okay, I think the jingling girdle really, really excites me. It's not necessarily my favorite position because it's very exhausting being on top. But actually, it's also the sitting position, which is done through a seven-string necklace of pearls. That's a very exciting one too. And it has lots of permutations and combinations. London or New Delhi? London. Favorite cuisine? Chinese. Making love or telling stories? Telling stories. Best aphrodisiac? Okay, I have to tell you this. I know it's rapid fire, but it's, it needs a bit of an explanation. The Kamsutra says there's no such thing as an aphrodisiac where you pop something into your mouth and you become an amazing lover. That's not how it works. What it says in the way of aphrodisiacs is anything that will take away the bloating. Once the wind is removed and the bloating is removed and your digestive system works properly, that is the best aphrodisiac to have. And so keeping that in mind, Hajmola. Maybe that explains why as people get older, when there is more of these bloating gas issues, they stop having sex because they don't have Hajmola. Alternative career, if not for storytelling? Fight pilot. It's your next birth when you're reborn. (laughs) That's the unfulfilled desire in this life. Favorite mythical character? I like Robin a lot. He's a fascinating character. Favorite Hindu mythology? The Mahabharata is an incredible story and I love it. Every time you read that story, you can find something new. But if I had to pick literally just one story, it's the churning of the ocean. Seema, what a delightful and enthralling conversation. On behalf of Ake Women and my colleague Medha Jai Shankar, thank you for taking this time. For all our listeners and viewers, you can follow us on Instagram and Facebook. Namaste. Thank you, Monica. It was a delight talking to you as well. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com.